Welcome to Medicare Advantage for Health Plans podcast. Insider insights and perspectives on current trends for health plan professionals. This program is sponsored by UST HealthProof and AdvantageSure. Services and technology solutions for government-sponsored health plans. Today we're talking about unlocking the potential of prospective programs with Michelle Calagaz. Michelle is an expert in prospective risk adjustment programs and specializes in provider engagement tactics. Welcome, Michelle. Hi there. I'm excited to be here and talk about the prospective programs with you. Michelle, in risk adjustment, CMS needs to receive information about the health of a member so the appropriate resources can be assigned for each member's care. We were talking offline earlier, and you brought to light an important point, that there's a lot of confusion in the industry about the role of prospective programs versus what's discoverable in a retrospective program. Will you clarify some of the points of confusion that you see between prospective and retrospective programs? Yes, I find that there's a lot of confusion about the expectations of the prospective programs. In order to realize the full potential of the prospective programs, I think it's important for providers and plans to understand what is prospective, what's retrospective, and how the two um, complement each other in a holistic program. Prospective is looking forward, so something that is likely to be or an outcome that is expected. Retrospective, on the other hand, is looking backwards into the past. Both pieces are utilized in the CMS risk adjustment world. You may hear the term retrospective review. That is when the medical records of past experiences, codes, health are reviewed, whereas the prospective review is reviewing the current status for the health of the patient as it is today. In the CMS risk adjustment world, we have to paint a picture of what the patient looks like. So we have to paint a picture of Mrs. Smith to CMS. CMS is not going to come down and see what Ms. Smith looks like and how well she's doing. They can only see what's in the data, and they'll assign resources to Mrs. Smith based on what is in that data. So let's say Mrs. Smith had controlled diabetes last year, but this year it's gotten worse. Now it's uncontrolled and she has neuropathy. If CMS only has the retrospective information or the past information, Mrs. Smith will look fairly healthy with controlled diabetes. But by adding the prospective component or the current state, CMS will receive new information about Ms. Smith's current state, providing a full picture of Mrs. Smith's health. This information has to be captured in the documentation so that CMS can assign more resources, in in other words, money, but if that information never makes it into the documentation or on a claim, CMS isn't going to know and the plan isn't going to get the appropriate resources to pay for Ms. Smith's progressing condition. If CMS doesn't provide the correct resources, then the health plan will lose money and that'll impact premiums, making them higher, or Medicare co-pays may increase. Every year, we need to capture the current picture of the health for each member through a prospective lens. Before we move on, let's talk a little bit about how the providers get paid. There are two main categories One is fee-for-service, and the other is risk agreements. In a typical fee-for-service market, the provider has a contract with the payer. 
The provider puts the services that they provide on a claim and the health plan pays the provider according to the contracted fee schedule that they have with the provider. For example, if you look in an EOB or an explanation of benefits that you may receive from your health plan, you can see that the provider's office charged $1,000 for a service, but the health plan only paid $600. This is because the health plan's fee schedule with that provider only allows for a $600 payment. The provider doesn't get the $1,000 they charged. They are reimbursed at the contracted rate defined by the fee schedule, which in this example was $600. Now with risk agreements, the provider organization and the health plan agree to share the risk of the expenses for the patient population. The provider, the organization, the provider organization will receive a percentage of the premium revenue and are responsible for medical expenses for those members. Keeping the patient well decreases cost. So it's in everybody's best interest to make sure that that patient is seen and the health care is reviewed each and every year. So if there's revenue over and above the member's health care needs, that's kept by the provider organization. However, if the care expenses exceed the revenue, the provider owes money back to the plan. This shared responsibility requires the providers to document, follow the treatment plan, and follow up with the patient to increase adherence to the treatment plan. This model promotes patient-centered health care. You may hear, hear that term quite often, that there is a patient-centered health care. It redefines the relationship between the providers and the plans as a collaborative effort, which prospective programs support very well. Earlier, you mentioned that risk agreements were favorable for prospective program success. Can you elaborate on this idea? Sure. The prospective programs support managing the care of the patient's current state. Risk-sharing payments model or mirror this idea and encourages the complete documentation of the current condition. So most prospective programs will request feedback on current diagnoses of the patient by obtaining the documentation to confirm. So they want to confirm, yes, this condition still exists and has worsened. Or they want to confirm, no, that this condition no longer is present. If the condition isn't documented, it doesn't exist, and it is considered an open gap. How can health plans best support providers to document and follow through with patient-centered care? So the most effective way for plans and providers to work together is a plan-sponsored provider engagement program. This maintains an open line of communication to ensure both sides are working together to keep the documentation up to date. It also provides a path to CMS submissions. So the first thing is to present the providers with any open gaps to confirm whether last year's historical conditions still exist. This has to be done each year because it's a prospective program. Then we might also sprinkle in some opportunities or suspects about the condition that have never been coded for Mrs. Jones, but we think she might have them because the retrospective analysis of her medical record data suggests it. The suspected conditions are discovered in the retrospective review process we already discussed, 
where we look backwards into the history of a patient. This particular instance suggests that a condition exists, but it was never fully documented. Once the suspected condition is identified in this retrospective review or the retrospective component of the program, it can be included as a suggested open gap and captured in the prospective piece of the program. This information gets put onto a form. We call it the CDI alert. Um, this is a clinical documentation improvement alert. We ask the provider to address the open gaps with the member at the next visit. It's important to realize a response on a CDI alert form provides information for one day, the day of the visit. Another thing, the CDI alert is not to be mistaken for merely, merely printing out a form with general suggestions or screenings. You know the patient is 70 years old and there's a bunch of conditions that occur frequently in that population. It's not presenting the provider with that information. What it is, is specific to the member. It's specific codes and diagnosis that the member has on claims or data from the pharmacy or lab that indicates what a member may have. The other thing to mention is that this form is an actionable activity. The provider uses this as a guide. Notice I said guide. The form is not a medical record. It is a guide for the provider saying what the data is indicating and asking the provider, can you address these conditions? Can you document them in your medical record? The provider is the expert. The health plan offers insights from a bird's eye view of the CMS documentation requirements. Is there a best practice for how to structure the provider engagement programs? In terms of delivery, there's no best practice. It just depends on what's best for the provider office. But in terms of the program itself, successful programs need to have continual communication, timely responses, and deliver specific and actionable provider feedback. Let's talk a little bit about that. So the idea of using a form to present gaps to the provider is not new. However, in the industry, we've seen programs that may present the form to the provider in a manner that may not be truly prospective. In some cases, the provider receives 300 forms at the beginning of the year, and by the end of the year, the forms are supposed to be returned. The intent of the program is undermined because there's no opportunity for communication or actionable feedback, and it's not timely. It's occurring way after the office visit. Some of the programs have general feedback in the form of an annual report, so it's given to the provider at the end of the year. The report might say, we found 200 cases of controlled diabetes, and of those 200 cases, we found that 50% were actually uncontrolled. That's not particularly helpful for a provider to read. There's no action to be taken. What does this translate into? It doesn't really translate into anything except for that they need to improve their documentation, but it doesn't give them the information at an individual member level or at the time of the visit. So it's very hard to change the behavior of the, of the provider. So, one of the key things to remember here is that we need to give the providers actionable information at the time of the visit. 
we want the providers to document and close gaps at the time of the visit. We want the provider to return the form within 14 days of the visit. We've seen in the market that there's no industry standard timeline for when the form should be returned by the end of the year or when the member is next seen. That's a very broad range. So again, in order for this to be truly prospected, it has to be timely. And we feel returning the form within 14 days accomplishes this. A further point to add is that we provide feedback in the form of queries within seven days. That way, if we see that the documentation or the opportunity has questions, we sort it out within a reasonable time frame. There's an unspoken industry standard that is generally accepted that CMS frowns on any kind of addendums or changes to the medical record after 30 days. So we try to get the providers to return a form within 14 days. So if we do have any questions in the form of a query, we can get that back to them within the 30-day unspoken standard. So let's think about it this way. So if you are driving over the speed limit, if the speed limit is 30 and you're going 31, technically you're still speeding, but it's, you're not likely to get a ticket. But if you're going 45, your risk of getting a ticket increases. So medical records can be addended within 30 days of the visit without an increased risk for CMS audit. Again, this is not a written rule, but this is how we came up with our 14-day sweet spot for receiving back the CDI alert. This gives us seven days to review it. And if there is an addendum required or requested, there's only 21 days in from the date of service. There's still seven days to change the medical record, update it, addend it, and this timeline seems to support the maximum benefit for prospective programs. We've talked about the importance of timely and continual communication in provider engagement programs. Let's talk about the queries and how specific feedback is a valuable part of the prospective success. Great question. Uh, let's illustrate how this works. Every January, a CDI alert gets put in front of the provider. That's when all the gaps reopen and need to be documented for the new year. So the provider needs to indicate which conditions still exist, if any new conditions have emerged, and if there are any dropped conditions. Let's say the provider addresses all the conditions, documents it, and submits it with the response. Let's say that the medical coder reviews a CDI alert response and they have a question. They see that controlled diabetes was marked as present on the CDI alert, but the medical record states some complications. The coder sends a query to ask the doctor to document the complication. The doctor gets the query and addends the record to add the patient has developed neuropathy. Now, there's a new code submitted and the member has more resources from CMS for the treatment of the neuropathy, not just the diabetes. Then it goes back through the same cycle next January. The CDI alert will ask the doctor if the patient still has diabetes now with neuropathy. This will continue each year for the recoding. The specific feedback that was delivered in a timely manner enables us to capture the complete picture of the patient for this year. You have to realize, every year the member is a blank slate to CMS. 
It's kind of like one of those color by number sheets you got when you were a kindergartner. At the beginning of the year, there are no colors on the sheet. Throughout the year, the doctor, through documenting in medical records and submitting claims up to CMS, colors in the different numbers on the sheets. They're colored in with the different conditions. By the end of the year, there's a full color picture to give to CMS. CMS provides the resources for whatever that picture looks like at the end of the year. Whatever the picture is for the full health of that patient, whether whether that picture now has one color or whether it's completely colored in, that is what CMS is going to use as the guide for the resources for that patient. So if the member doesn't come in and see the doctor, or the claims don't get coded, or the provider doesn't document appropriately, or colors in the wrong colors, CMS can only pay for the colors that they see. That makes sense. Earlier, you mentioned the delivery method didn't matter as long as it fit the operational structure of the provider. Let's talk about the different ways these programs can be delivered. So we try to match the practice with the right type of provider engagement for them. We have in-person, electronic, and remote. Some practices really enjoy the in-person provider engagement because we have a person going in on site weekly or biweekly, and they act as a touch point, and they have the same person coming in week over week. The practices that prefer this method value the relationship and the personalization. Um, They also appreciate the guidance to maximize the education um, and the documentation opportunities. This is a paper-based delivery model, and it has the highest level of oversight. So it works really well for those providers that want to maximize the benefit of the risk-sharing agreement. Another option we have is an electronic provider engagement. This is a technology solution that integrates with the practice's EMR system. The benefit here is that the CDI alerts are integrated into the provider's already existing workflow, so it's very convenient to capture documentation opportunities at the time of service. This works great for providers that are excited about embracing new technology and they value their technology in their workflow. If the practice doesn't feel um, that they need much guidance or they're hesitant about the EMR integrations, we also have a remote support option. This is great for practices that have an already established formal operational process for returning and distributing the CDI alerts within their practices. And they're responding well to the queries. They don't really need a whole lot of oversight. But it is because it is the lowest level of support, it's not recommended for practices that are new to the provider engagement world or if they don't have a formalized process that's continuous and timely, then this might not be the best option. The other two options have a return rate of over 75% for the CDI alerts. Are there any statistics on how provider engagement programs improve risk scores? Yes, there there actually are. Um, The average plan will see between 10 to 15% risk score improvement 
And with the star ratings, if you incorporate the star care gaps, we see an average increase of 5%. Closing the gaps on addressable conditions has a far-reaching effect on the quality of care and member outcomes. So you're going to see that reflected in the numbers. That's fantastic. And I'm sure it's really rewarding to know that these programs are having a ripple effect on a plan's population health. It is. It's it's really rewarding and it's energizing and we get a lot of feedback from the providers that they they enjoy this type of uh, programs as well. Fantastic. Well, Michelle, thanks so much for joining today. Absolutely. Anytime. I always enjoy talking about prospective programs. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify and share this episode with your colleagues on LinkedIn. This program was brought to you by UST HealthProof and AdvantageSure. From end-to-end core administrative processing, risk adjustment and quality, to clinical operations, care management and member acquisition. We offer a full suite of services and technology solutions for government-sponsored health plans.